0: As we turn to God's word, let's also turn to him once again in prayer, asking for his help and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promise to be with your people. We thank you, Father, for your provision of your word and spirit. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and open your Your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what you ask your people to do. And Father, in all of this, help us to grow in a humble reliance upon the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe that uh, back on July 7th, we started this year's um, installment of our summer psalm series with psalm chapter 28 and today we're ending on the first sunday of september with psalm 36 and lord willing we'll pick back up next summer with where we left off so the psalms those 150 songs and prayers offered to god by israel and to the church it's the church's hymn book it's the church's prayer book And this book, as we've been seeing, is both familiar and foreign. It's familiar in that many people's favorite scriptures come from the Psalms. Think of Psalm 23, think of Psalm 100. Very familiar. But also foreign, written over 1,200 years, a long time ago, in a place far away over uh, those 12 centuries. These Psalms are diverse as we go from week to week, we see they're diverse, but they're also united. They're centered on the one true and living God. And we've been noticing uh, that it's not a narrative. It's not narrative prose. It's, it's poetry. And when we read poetry, we have to slow down and think and at times read over and over again. And as we read with faith, we are transformed not just informed. And indeed, I'm sure that's happening to many of you as you spend time in the psalms. It certainly did for me this summer. Now, as Rob has has been mentioning, often we sing the psalm that we're going to look at in detail right before the sermon. And what a great privilege it is to sing The Psalms, we don't need exclusive psalmody in the church, meaning only Psalms, but most certainly we need inclusive. We need to include the Psalms. Because the Psalms not only promote corporate worship on the Lord's Day, they promote all of life worship. You see, gathering as God's people on the first day of the new week is is an anchor, it's an anchor for our lives, it's an engine. For all of life worship. You see, what is happening today as we worship God together, we are being reoriented. In other words, false gods are being identified. It moves us away from our idols, from those things or people other than the Lord that we find ourselves placing our trust, even a little trust in. So corporate worship reorients us, but corporate worship also realigns us when we are worshiping the true and living God, but maybe with false worship, with doing things we think he is pleased with, and yet he hasn't asked for it. So worship moves us away from our idols and to God, and and worship moves us in deeper communion with him. The Psalms are a precious treasure for the church Around the world, through the centuries, it's a precious treasure for us here and now. We neglect them to our detriment, and we pay attention to them to our great benefit in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so let's pay attention together to Psalm 36. Join with me now as I read Psalm 36. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Well, our approach this morning to Psalm 36 will be first to consider the prayer which ends the psalm. Then we'll take a look at two images that are in the heart and mind's eye of the psalmist, a picture of the people who don't know God, and a portrait of the people who do. Well, let's begin at the end of the psalm where we see an urgent and confident prayer. An urgent and confident prayer. Look how the prayer begins. Oh, oh, and we saw that a few weeks ago in Psalm 34 where three times, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord. The three O's we saw from Psalm 34, and here it shows up at the beginning of this prayer. Oh, continue your steadfast love, he prays. David, the psalmist, is confident. He knows the scriptures. He knows God's word. He he prays what God has already promised in his word. Isn't that interesting? Praying the promises. This is not name it and claim it theology. This is taking God at his word and believing it and acting accordingly. It's confident. He knows that the steadfast love is upon God. The people of God. He knows it. And he asks for it to be continued. Continue what you're already doing, Lord. And he's also confident that the evildoers, the the wicked, they have a destiny. They will be fallen. They will be thrust down. They'll be unable to rise. I mean, all this summer have we not seen... David up against the wicked, the evildoers, people in pursuit of his life. And David, of course, representing all of the people of God there. He's confident that they're fallen. In other words, they fall. He's confident that they are thrust down, notice, by another. And they end up in an immovable position. It's urgent prayer. It's confident prayer. And and, and what is his main request? Well, we've already mentioned it, that the steadfast love of the Lord, that special covenant love that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will never let you go, that love, that covenant love guaranteed by the faithfulness and integrity of God himself, that that love would continue. He also says in verse 11, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And we'll see that one of the hallmarks of the wicked is the wicked's arrogance. He does not want to be driven away by the hand of the wicked. He doesn't want the foot of arrogance to come upon him. And what's interesting is I think we will see is, this image of the foot and the hand, of the hand of arrogance and the, the, foot, uh, or the foot of arrogance and the hand of the wicked. Um, David's going to also pray, not just confidently, but humbly. He's, it's as if he's saying, Lord, don't let me be arrogant. Don't let that come upon me. Yes, we will see they are arrogant, but Lord, keep arrogance away from me. Don't let the hand of the wicked drive me away. Well, what's not said? What's the dot, dot, dot after away? Don't let the wicked drive me away from you. You see, that's David's heart's desire. That's his cry. Lord, I want to be with you, near you. Wickedness is seeking to move me away and drive me away. But, oh, Lord, continue your steadfast love and protect me. You see, this prayer at the end of Psalm 36 draws our attention to two kinds of people. And if you turn back to Psalm 1, the gateway into all of the Psalms, it's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And there's an echo here of Psalm 1. There's a comparison of the wicked and the righteous. There's two kinds of people here. Those who Know the Lord and who are upright in heart, and those who don't know the Lord, who aren't upright. And David will refer to them as the wicked and the evildoers. So whenever you see Scripture unfold before us, kind of two kinds of people, it's worth asking a question. I'll ask the question, who are you? Who are you? You know, the the scriptures are like a window through which we see who God is. The scriptures are also like a mirror into which we look and we see who we are. But don't just answer the question I ask. Ask yourself that question. Who am I? Who am I at the core of my being? Who am I? Am I someone who knows the living and true God? Or am I someone who does not know the living and true God? Well, preceding this direct prayer with which the psalm ends are two images that inform and fuel this prayer that provide both content and motivation. And the first is a picture of the wicked, Let's take a look. A picture of the people who do not know God. It's a picture of the godlessness of the wicked. Now, look how Psalm 1 or me, Psalm 36 opens in verse 1. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Well, this is a very awkward statement, an awkward sentence. It's a difficult verse to translate from the original Hebrew and there have been kind of a couple of ways to look at it as kind of sin and transgression personified kind of taking on the characteristics of a person speaking or as a, as a word from the Lord about um, sin and transgression, an oracle as some of the Bible translations translated. E- either way, what we have before us in the next few verses is an insight into the true character of the wicked. You see, the wicked do have character. The wicked are people of character. You thought about that? And we will see the depth of that character. Well, here is the leading, the summary description, the characteristic. We see it at the end of verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's how the wicked are described. Now the wicked are not just, are not faithful people like us who have moral flaws, who, who sin. These are people given over to evil. Notice, this is not the fear of the Lord. This is not the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom that we read in the Psalms and in Proverbs, but rather this is no fear of God. It's it's actually a different word. It's it's not fear as in reverence and awe, it's actually fear of terror, fear of dread. You see, they take no account of the all-seeing eye of God and His righteous judgment and His power. There is no fear of God before His eyes. His eyes are blind. His eyes are closed. When it comes to God, they're indifferent They're complacent. The issue is not whether or not God exists, but whether or not He matters. Not His reality, but rather His relevance. You see, there is a healthy kind of fear of the Lord. There's the reverence and the awe, but also there's an initial healthy fear of the Lord that is terrifying, that is horrific. Think about Isaiah. The great prophet Isaiah, he in the vision sees and hears of the holiness of the Lord, the holy, holy, holy. And what is his response? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. You see, right then and there, Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord in His holiness and he is absolutely terrified. My friends, before anybody comes to faith in Christ, before they are woken up to the sweet aroma of grace, if a person is in their right mind, they should be absolutely terrified of the judge. Because everybody in that truth that they they suppress, that they exchange. There's that sense still within everyone of, hey, wrong, whatever it may be for them, has got to be dealt with. People have that within them. But there's none of that. He's not afraid. There's no terror. He's indifferent. He's complacent. Now, before you... um, say, what on earth are you talking about? Let's think about Jesus for a moment. You know, Jesus speaks of this fear in in Matthew. Matthew 10, 28. We read about it quite a few verses in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is promoting and advocating this right kind of fear of God. About a year or so ago, someone uh, brought my attention to a great statement uh, from um, J. Gresham Machen about why the law is important in the life of the Christian. And it made, he makes the statement that a high view of law makes a man seek after grace. When the standards are high that it's really humanly impossible to meet them, we cry out for help. We cry out for assistance. We seek after grace. So this is a picture of the people who don't know God. There's no fear before His eyes. But, but look what goes on after that. This description, the characteristics of the wicked that flows from this first overall statement and it flows downhill he flatters himself not with self-righteousness but rather smug conceit he's accountable he thinks to no one you know all of us throw around that word accountability we want accountability in government we want accountability in the church we want accountability in friendships absolutely accountability is a good thing it allows societies to function but here He's thinking, I'm not accountable. There's no one who's going to call me to account. Jonathan Edwards, in thinking about this verse, says, He who makes little of God makes much of himself. He who makes little of God makes much of himself. And look, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He's got a devious strategy of communications. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He's deceived and that deception paves the way for disobedience. Because what is sowed in the mind works itself out with the hand, as it were. He plots trouble while on his bed. You know, this is not the righteous man of Psalm 1 who day and night meditates on God's word, on his law. No, what does he do? He's on his bed and he's scheming. And he's plotting. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He deliberately orients himself. And finally, we see he does not reject evil. He does not reject evil. He uh, approves evil. It's it's the end of Romans 1 when Paul is trying to describe this world in rebellion to God. He, He goes through all kinds of exchanging natural passions for unnatural and he goes on to speak of people who not only do evil, but approve of evil. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, says this, Without God, all things are permissible. Scripture says with God, all things are possible, right? Salvation in particular, The godless man, the man who has no fear of God before his eyes. Without God, all things are permissible. Is this not an accurate description of the world we live in today? You think the Psalms written centuries ago aren't relevant? My friends, it doesn't get more relevant than this. Paul, in writing to the Romans, used a lot of his knowledge of the Psalms to communicate to the church about the doctrine of salvation in Christ. The mercy that God shows in Christ. And in particular, uh, in chapter 3, he quotes the first verse of psalm 36 if you could turn over to romans chapter 3 paul is trying to let everybody know that no one is righteous that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and he he says beginning in verse 10 as it is written and then he quotes uh prophets and psalms just to describe who man is and he ends up saying in verse 18 there is no fear of god before their eyes. Their eyes. Well, notice in Psalm 36, it's his eyes, and now it's their eyes. You see, Paul is arguing that Jew and Gentile are both guilty before God. There is no one, as it were, un- that's not unclean. Their eyes. There's no fear. He's, it's, it's a frightening picture that is unfolding through this slow progression. It starts off with no fear of God before their eyes, and it ends with someone who doesn't reject evil, someone who embraces evil. Yes, there's a description of the wicked, but the psalmist is going to want us to ask, "Are, are we there too? Are there... Aspects of our life that line up with this description? It's worth asking yourself. A picture of the wicked is not the only thing in the mind of the psalmist as he prays. There's also a portrait of the Lord, first and foremost, along with that of his people. There's an abrupt shift. Notice going from the end of verse 4 to the beginning of verse 5 a an abrupt shift there's a movement as it were from darkness to light now some Bible scholars who look at the Bible and, and say that this can't be the Word of God this can't be true this can't be authoritative they go wait a minute what kind of psalmist is this that would abruptly go from darkness to light and they say that oh well this is a combination of two authors Well, I think the psalmist here is wanting to make a point. He's wanting the abrupt shift from darkness to life. You see, that person described in full in the first four verses is utterly lost. And so only God could rescue a soul that's utterly lost. And so beginning in verse 5 through 9, we see a portrait of the Lord and those who know Him. A portrait of the Lord and those who know Him. There is a multi-sided fullness to this description, to these characteristics of the Lord. Notice, He speaks of His steadfast love, extends to the heavens, His faithfulness to the clouds. It's, it's how, do you, how do you search the heavens and the clouds God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, it's, it's unsearchable. The Lord in Exodus 34 describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God merciful and and gracious slow to anger and what is he abound in we see it in Psalm 36 steadfast love and faithfulness loving kindness mercy his righteousness extends up what like the mountains of God they are impregnable his judgments could be his his judgments on evil and sin but also just his revealed will his his judgments his his are great, great depth, they are inexhaustible. But this God who is steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and, and just is also, as we see, welcoming and hospitable. Look how it continues. To speak of feasting and a fountain. You see, God is described as, with you is the fountain of life, verse 9. He refreshes and sustains life. And then, in your light do we see light. His word and his spirit illuminate the world for his people. You see, the psalmist is wanting to show that God brings his love and faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice, all to bear on his people, on those who know him. So that is the description of the Lord. But there's also a description, notice, of the Lord's people, those who know Him. Look at the actions in response to who the Lord is and what He does. First of all, they recognize and rejoice in His steadfast love. Look at verse 7 again. How precious is Your steadfast love, O God. This is David, the man of war, the man on the run, the man who, Scripture said, Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is a man who, nonetheless, can speak of God's covenant love as precious. It's excellent. It's priceless. So, verses five and six aren't they immense? There's mountains and heavens and depths. And now it goes from immense to intimate to personal. His steadfast love is precious. So God's people recognize that and and rejoice in that, but they also take refuge in the Lord. Has that not been a major theme of the Psalms? That God's people take refuge in Him and find refuge in Him. And look at this description In verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. We saw that in Isaiah 55. If you want to go toward the end of the Bible, you see one picture of the new heavens and the new earth as being one of feasting, of delight. Verses 5-9 through really do show us this close and inseparable relationship. Between who the Lord is and who His people are. There's an intimacy, a closeness. As it were, they are united. So David has prayed this prayer in view of the godlessness of the wicked and the goodness of the Lord. The psalm opens with the godliness of the wicked and ends with the goodness of the Lord. So let me ask you this. Has this prayer of the psalmist, has David's prayer been answered? Has it? You know the verse. Paul's writing to a church that's struggling, that's having difficulties. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and he makes this statement. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Kids, who's he talking about? Who's, who's the amen and the yes? Of course, it's Jesus It's Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself, post-resurrection, even during his earthly ministry, is showing from the scriptures who he is. He tells the disciples after his resurrection that everything written about me in the Psalms and the prophets had to be fulfilled. A few years ago we did a sermon series in the Gospel of John called, I Am Jesus in His Own Words. You see, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, John ten eleven, he himself is our refuge. David is confessing that the Lord is a refuge for his people, and Jesus is saying, I am that refuge, I am that shelter, I am that protector, I am the good shepherd. When Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, I am your sustenance. Jesus is thinking of what is said here in Psalm 36. And when Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is saying, he is our illumination. In your light, do we see light? Jesus is saying, it's about me. Indeed, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And that's what David is speaking of for those who know the Lord, who, for those who know in particular the steadfast love of the Lord. Paul goes on as far to say that Jesus Christ is your life for the believer. He writes to the church in Colossae, Jesus Christ is your life. You see, knowing the steadfast love of the Lord is knowing Jesus Our New Testament reading, that dimensions of the love of Christ, we see that in Psalm 36. I I was thinking, as of course this psalm draws attention and points us to David's greater son, to the Messiah, to Jesus. I was thinking about how psalm 12 ended excuse me psalm 36 ends in verse 12 there the evil doers lie fallen there they are thrust down unable to rise you know he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of god right Jesus was crucified in our place and on our behalf, right? He was treated as the wicked man. He was treated for a time as the evildoer, although there was no deceit in his mouth, even though the Roman governor found this man to be innocent. David acknowledges that evildoers fall themselves that they are thrust down and they are unable to rise but oh my friends is it that good news that 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 is not Jesus for he did rise after he bore the weight of sin in our place and on our behalf my friend, Psalm 36 is about the steadfast love of the Lord that we see most clearly in Jesus. That never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Do you know that kind of love? You know, before you know that kind of love, you, you've got to have the right fear of God before your eyes. Psalm 36 is a call to look first at us and see who we are. But it's a call for us to take our eyes off of ourself and to put it, them on the God of steadfast love, the God who has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. My friends, evil has already been dealt with at the cross. And we will see it fully and finally dealt with when Christ returns and we are ushered in to a world filled with people who know the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that once again helps us to grow in our understanding of the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love that you have for your people. Father, would you indeed let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, whether it's from the outside or from the inside. Father, would you keep the hand of the wicked away from us so that we would not be driven from you. But indeed, Father, as the feet and hand of wickedness and arrogance are upon us, may they drive us more and more to you where we find refuge. We thank you, God, that your love for us in Christ can never fail. Amen.